back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome program Caregiver Dave. It's Nassani. Dave, what's going on, man? How are you doing? I'm excited. I'm pumped. I'm thrilled. Uh, my book was launched yesterday. We've already got 150 people who've bought it so far, and we are at the number one uh, bestseller of a new release. And that's congrats. And that's the thing about everyone's project. There is an opportunity. And this is what I love is everyone has a story, every own things. And Dave, you've worked hard. Congratulations on what you've been able to accomplish. And our guest today, Christopher Zaluski, is going to talk about theirs is the kingdom. And uh, Christopher is the director of it. Christopher, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's just, you know, just jump specifically in. Did you always want to be a director? Is this something growing up? One of the things I'm now trying to do, Christopher, is I'm niching down a little bit in my industry to start working with film directors and producers to help create tribes and communities. So I'm in this process of doing that to try to understand this industry more and more because I do work with authors. I work with everyone around. But because of me being in the entertainment field and I was a professional wrestler for X amount of years and all these things, movies and television just truly interest me. So I said, hey, based on my marketing skills and what I do, I really want to get involved and understand this. So is directing something you always wanted to do? No, definitely not. I, um, I, I was always attracted to uh, being a writer. So I, I wanted to be a newspaper reporter and I was a newspaper reporter for a number of years. And um, I got into uh, nonfiction filmmaking and documentary filmmaking through that route. And so for me, it was always about storytelling. I didn't know the first thing about um, what a director or a director of photography or an editor or a grip or a producer or any of that stuff. I got into it through um, uh, just my background as a journalist. And then it slowly morphed into another um, another mode of storytelling that was really effective. And so that's how I got into it. Um, but no, for me, it's always about the story. So I was never really into, you know, being in, into movies or anything like that. So into storytelling. So a lot of filmmakers, they go in the route of, of feature length films or documentaries. And what, what intrigued you is the story of documentaries. And people don't think about documentaries, even though lots of people do them, meaning the process of how you create a documentary, the, the, the way you do all these different things in it. Because again, you know, some documentaries go to the, go to the, to the movies, but sometimes they're on PBS, different things like that. Yeah. A documentary person, do you see that filmmakers choose different routes? And one of the reasons is because the documentary is more of a, telling a story in a way that's a real story sometimes compared to you know, uh, a full length feature film or a short? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, for, for one, I'll say, I think that um, we're kind of in a golden age for documentaries right now. I mean, there's so many platforms that are um, in need of high quality nonfiction content. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think for a while, you know, if you were a documentary filmmaker, you were kind of like second tier. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still probably that perception, but there's a lot more of crossover right now between fiction filmmakers who try their hand in documentary and then big time documentary filmmakers who are now getting the opportunity to tell uh, fiction stories. I think that you see kind of the influence a little bit with both for, for better and for worse. But um, I mean, for me, it was always, it, it, I never had the desire to make a fiction film. It, 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 I was in the nonfiction world because of my background. And so it was just documentary was the Ooh. most you know, logical next step for me. Um, but in terms of what you're saying, um, you know, is it about story or is it about the role? 
like most of the productions that I've worked on, it's been small crews. And so I, I love the aspect of being in an environment, meeting people, talking with people that I never would have talked with before and having my hand in all phases of production from directing to filming, to editing, to producing. Um, and so documentary also kind of lends itself to allowing me to have my hand in all, in all aspects of production. So true, Christopher, you know, and the fact that uh, during the Academy Awards that uh, independent filmmakers are now able to uh, win a big award has really broken the, the uh, barriers. Um, I was in the right place at the right time and met a filmmaker. I just told him my story just because I was being sociable. And he says, wow, that'd make a great story. And he's, he's already making a film. It started out as a documentary, but now it's a feature length film. And so uh, I'm right there with you. Um, maybe this opportunity wouldn't have been there a few years ago. But uh, how, what are some of the challenges of, of doing that? Well, I mean, it's always a long game because it, it takes a while, especially if you're in the style of filmmaking that I've been drawn to recently, which is more observational or verite. So you start a film sometimes and you don't know how it's going to end. Mm -hmm. And so you're following a story for sometimes years um, the most recent film of mine, theirs is The Kingdom. It took me about three years to make, um, which isn't that long in, in comparison. You know, I've had friends who've worked on films for seven, 10, 12 years. And wow. so, wow. you know, the challenge when you're working on a project that long is, well, one, that can't be the only thing you're doing. So how do you <laughs> juggle that? You know, so you have funding issues, you have things like that. Um, and then I think the second part is just burnout. I mean, we don't have big crews most of the time. You're working with crews of maybe three, four, five people. Um, and so you're doing a lot of the work. And so you really have to love it. You have to be um, passionate about the film, the, the story that you're telling. Um, and so I don't know. I think that there's a little bit of a grittiness to it that really attracts me, but it probably would be a challenge for a lot of people. Yeah, I can say that. Uh <laughs> Go ahead, Neil. Okay, great, Dave. So basically, the, how did this project start about There is a Kingdom? How did that happen? Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. So the film follows the uh, creation of a large-scale fresco mural in the sanctuary of this small church in uh, a town called Asheville, North Carolina. So I don't know if you're familiar with Asheville, oh, yeah. a small town in western North oh. Carolina. So I was living in Asheville at the time. Um, the, a, a, a subject of mine from a previous documentary actually told me about this painting that was going to happen and um, at the time she told me about it, there was a, a funding controversy kind of surrounding the, the painting. And I thought, oh, a controversy. Let me go. Let me go figure this out. You know, it, it kind of felt like there could have been some drama. Um, and I went and I heard the pastor of this church talk about what the painting meant to him. And I was immediately sucked in. And it was a much bigger story. You know, from the beginning, I, I realized it's much bigger than just this funding controversy. And so that aspect is a is a blip in the film, but it's much more about you know, the overall uh, message that the fresco is, is talking about, um, it's about carrying on an ancient, you know, technique that really isn't practiced all that much anymore. And so, yeah, it just kind of snowballed. And uh, I told myself it was just going to be a short film. That's a trick to trick myself into approaching a topic. Because if you know you're going to be doing something for three plus years, you're never going to do it. So it just one thing led to the next and I followed it for three years. Here we are. Yeah, that's what my guy said too. <laughs> it just developed. He didn't know, he didn't even know the name of it. He didn't know how it was going to end. He yeah. just kept going, you know, and he followed me around for two and a half years. Yeah. And now uh, a year of editing, and now he's uh, going to polish that editing. Uh, what process, uh, where are you in the process on this one? 
this one's already released. This is the yeah. oh, right. and everything. Yeah. So, so this, this, yeah, go ahead, Neil. Sorry. No, I was going to add just, just to the point of, yeah. So he's, this is big. And he, during Easter had air and PBS stations. Chris, you can explain that. Wow. Yeah. So we had kind of a, our big um, broadcast release was in April where we, um, aired on um, 80% of PBS stations around the country on Easter. Um, And it still has a PBS run, but that was kind of like the big uh, broadcast splash um, as part of uh, the PBS world channel. And, and now it's on um, uh, Apple TV, uh, Google play um, the YouTube movie section, the one you have to pay for the content. Um, So it's, it's, it's now being released on streaming platforms and that's really, you know, where we're seeing kind of the second wave of people who've seen the film. Now, how did you get that content? Sorry. How did you get that, uh, that contact with uh, PBS and what was it exactly about the film that caught their attention? Um, well, the, the, the contact was, was, um, I mean, I work with different distributors and different people who kind of see the film and, um, you know, and this is part of it too. This is the third film I've made and I've kind of learned a lot in terms of, um, not holding on to the film so tightly during the post-production phase, letting people see it, building advocates for the film, you know, getting people excited about it, that then we'll take it to their contacts and so on and so forth. And so that's, you know, kind of the process I went through with this film was that I, I showed it to some key people, um, you know, maybe four or five months before it was completely finished. Um, and I kind of created these advocates for the film that said, have you thought about PBS? Have you thought about this Avenue or this Avenue? Um, for PBS specifically, I mean, the film um, deals with themes of faith, although it is not a quote, you know, faith-based film. It does talk about faith, especially as it relates to this church that really deals with members of the homeless population in Asheville. And so you have faith, you have um, messages of um, poverty, homelessness, addiction, mental illness. And then you have all of this kind of encapsulated in this, this rare piece of art that's being created. And so those are kind of PBS friendly themes for the most part. I mean, we also did a, um, we did a a pretty big film festival run in the second half of 2021 to kind of drum up support and credibility for the film. So that when we reached out to these, these other platforms like Apple TV and Canopy is another one that's going to start at this, that's an educational uh, distributor. It had enough credibility, I think, behind it that people took notice. So when you talk about the film festival run and stuff like that, Chris, that, that, that's the big part of independent filmmakers, right? Is once you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you submit those to the film festivals and see what happens. And then when you get accepted, yeah. then that's the game on. It's the networking phase of it as a filmmaker, right? To really present it and talk to people to find distributors and things like that, right? Yeah, you know, the film festival world, and I'm certainly um, only speaking about this as an independent filmmaker. I I have a lot of friends who work as programmers and work from the business side of the film festival world. So I'm, I'm saying this from a content creator standpoint, um, that it's changed a ton in the last 10 years. And part of that is you have big films now that completely bypass the film festival ecosystem and go straight to Disney plus or go straight to Netflix. The film festival world isn't what it used to be as this gatekeeper. Um, But I think it is still really important to what you said, Neil. A lot of people that I collaborate with um, on projects through film festivals. And I think it's also important, um, like I said, as kind of a stamp of credibility that allows um, 
well, if it got here and here and here, it's a project that's worth, um, you know, giving somebody your, your attention. So how many film festivals were you in and uh, awards, I'm assuming? You won some? Yeah, we were in about 15 and we won three. Okay. Um, you know, film festivals are, are, are challenging, too. I mean, they're really <laughs> competitive. And so um, we felt pretty good about that run, though, overall. And we just based on the, the geographic nature of the film, um, we did a lot in the southeast um, throughout, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, but we also screened in California and New York. And, and so we've had, you know, a wider range, but it was concentrated in the Southeast. Yeah. What, and so basically in this, this process, what do you hope that your, the viewers get the, the people who view the film, get out of the film? What is your goal? Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of themes in the film about accepting the other whoever that other might be. I mean, that may be somebody on the street corner that we avert our eyes from. Um, that could be somebody um, within your own community that you don't think about on a daily basis. And so there's a lot of themes of, of um, kind of challenging this notion of who the other is in our society. Um, I also hope that, you know, if it, people see this, this piece of artwork and they're drawn to go visit it in real life, um, you know, it's a really amazing painting. It's 30 feet wide by 10 feet tall. The film cannot do justice to the real piece of art. And so I hope that it encourages people to go see the, the painting in real life. If you're ever in Asheville. Um, and uh, you know, and I have heard that from the church is that a lot of people come in because they saw the film. And so I, that's pretty encouraging. So what did you learn? You know, this is your third film. What did you learn from the first two films? And if, if you could go back in time hmm. and, and, you know, if you only knew, what would you tell yourself that younger person? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I watch those films occasionally still. Um, and there are things about them that I, that I don't like. And there are things about it that I still feel hold up pretty well. So, I mean, I, I think, um, there's just some things that more in terms of the distribution strategies that I've learned a lot in, especially with this third film mm -hmm. that I wish I had done, you know, especially in our first film. Um, it was a, it's called wagon masters. It's a cultural history of the station wagon in America. And um, we did so well with that film. We didn't even realize it. Really? I mean, we were interviewed on CBS Sunday morning. Oh. We were, um, we were set so CBS Saturday morning still national broadcast oh. flown to New York for this. Um, you know, it was on, you know, it's on Amazon still it, it's, but without knowing how to really push that out and capitalize on it, I feel like it kind of fizzled a little bit. And yeah. so most of the lessons that I've learned now, looking back, I think are from the distribution side of things. Um, I still feel pretty good with the filmmaking in, in all the films that I've worked on. They've been really different for me. It's, it's not a topic that draws me in. It's the story, whatever that story might be that draws me in. And so I feel good about that. Um, but yeah, I probably would, I probably would uh, talk about the distribution side. What has changed with distribution back then and now, because it, everything is always changing. Yeah. I mean, I think my perception back in 2011 was make a film, get somebody that sees it with money and they buy it and I sit back and they handle everything. That's, not, that's, just, that's just not realistic at all. I mean, even, even really big films, there's a level of independent. Um, you know, you have to, 
work on promoting it and doing all that on your own, no matter how good the film is. And so I think I probably would have been a little bit more proactive back then to try to get the film out there more. Definitely. And so this, the intriguing part is that you have to be a hustler. You have to, the director, the person is, this is your film. This is your baby. You need to be the hustler. You need to be able to get it and show it to different people. People understand the work that took place to get the success of being on CBS for the one film to getting film awards like this film. Mm-hmm. And then to be on a platform like PBS, it takes time and effort and it's worth it in so many ways, but yet a filmmaker, a young filmmaker, what recommendations would you give a young filmmaker today if they were going to try to be a filmmaker? Uh, networking. Networking's huge. I would definitely say you can't do everything by yourself. So create a team around you of people that you admire and respect and trust. Um, that's super important. Um, I would say that you can get um, people, I see this all the time, people get really bogged down with the technical requirements of whatever it is, what camera you're using, what software you have, what computer. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to be willing to go out there and film and talk to people and and be in the field for long periods of time and really work a story to, to get all the, you know, all the information you need out of it. And that has a lot less to do with, you know, all the intricacies of, of being technical and all of that than it does just being gritty and, and going out and being willing to put in the time and, and, uh, and, and the energy to make a good film. And so I think for me, I was too hung up on technology in the early days, trying to know all the facets of this and that. I think it's important to just there. Documentary filmmaking especially is a process of interpersonal relationships. You have to make people feel comfortable. You have to get people to open up to you. Um, that That's the biggest thing. And so it's just I don't know. I, I'm kind of rambling here, but I think it's just about being, uh, you know, open and vulnerable and, and, and honest with subjects in the same way that you want them to be with you. How long did it take you to get rid of all the side jobs and, and just, you know, devote 100 percent of your time on your films? Oh, there's always a hustle. I mean, there's always stuff I'm doing. I'm teaching. I'm working on commercial projects. I'm doing film projects. I think that that's always um, that's always kind of a nature of the business. It kind of depends on on what stage of the filmmaking process I'm in dictates how much energy I'm putting toward one thing or another. Um, You know, fortunately for the last few years, I haven't had to do as many commercial projects because I've been focused um, solely on my creative projects, which has been great. Um, But I'll probably get more into commercial projects here now in the next year or so. And, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth, but you're always doing a bunch of stuff. Well, it's good. You're an entrepreneur. That's the thing. That's the thing that you've been able to get to that level. All right, yeah. Dave, you have uh, Dave's final question is a caregiving question. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah. So um, 25 years ago, my wife had this headache. We've been married 47 years and it wouldn't go away. And, and it just turned into this stroke and she lost her speech, became paralyzed on one side. Gosh. And the next two years, you know, we were grieving and deciding what are we going to do about this and reinventing ourselves almost broke up, but we hung in there. She became her old self again. And, and mm-hmm. now I'm, Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. I go on television programs, been on 52 so far, spoke wow. all across the country, spoke in uh, London at the London Stock Exchange, met great famous people that uh, I shared the stage with. And I realized, because my message to caregivers is, you know, 30% of you are dying just from the stress. So you've got to learn how to deal with that. And even before you become a caregiver, you know, start thinking about 
uh, this is inevitable. You're either going to become one or you're going to need one. It's, it's the tsunami on the horizon. Hmm. Have you thought about that and, and what you're going to do? I mean, are you in a position, elderly parents, grandparents, uh, has it already happened? Um, you, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a good thing you bring up. I mean, I'm an only child, so I think about it all the time. I have both of my parents still. And so, um, I live about seven hours. I live in North Carolina. Now my parents are from Northeast Ohio. That's where I grew up. And so, um, yeah, I think about it all the time and I don't have a good I, a solution, but I will say that my wife and I talk about it and try to figure out what we will do. My wife's one of three. And I feel like with the siblings, you have a little bit more, um, I don't know, flexibility sometimes with caregivers, but, um, yeah, I, I think, I think about that a lot. Well, keep me in mind in my website, caregiverdave.com because right. one day you're going to need it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everyone, everyone's going to need it at one point. And, and I think caregiving is also just talking to them, being a good contacting your family, your, your parents, your grandparents. That's part of caregiving as well. All right, Dave, we appreciate it. And where can we check out the film right now? Where can we go? Chris? Uh, you could watch it on Apple TV. You could watch it on Google play. Um, you can watch it on uh, YouTube movies. It'll be on uh, Canopy for educational streaming. If you have a, if you're part of a university or have a library card, you'll be able to watch it this summer on Canopy. Um, or if you just go to theirsisthekingdomfilm.com, we have a list of all the places you could see it there. We have new streaming platforms coming out every day. So um, if you search it, you can find it and, and watch it. All right, Chris, thanks for stopping by. Appreciate it. Appreciate you too, Dave. And guys, take care. That was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Take care, guys. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And, you know, when you talk about relationships and how challenging they are, especially when it's talking about couples, my guest today is going to help us through this. Uh, Chris Schaefer is the uh, Schaefer is the couples whisperer. And Chris is going to really help us through this process. Chris, thanks for stopping by. And our relationships are difficult, aren't they? And especially when it comes to communication. Yeah, Neil, thank you for having me. Relationships are hard. And actually, right now in the United States, there's about 62 million marriages, another 25 million people who are cohabiting. This is from the U.S. Census. And if you toss in some more who aren't, haven't been counted, you're about 100 million relationships in the U.S. Half of them, half of them, one half, one and two are going to end. And it's a crapshoot. It really is a crapshoot. And the fact that people don't have the tools they need to navigate relationships. A marriage vow doesn't get, and a cup of coffee gets you the guarantee that uh, you might or might not get divorced. That really is what it amounts to. So relationships are a big challenge and that's kind of what I'm out there trying to help couples with. Exactly, and they're not willing to, to get help so it's too late. That's one of the big problems. That's your biggest challenge, finding yeah. them before it's too late. Really, I think that's if, if there was one takeaway people could have, it's that research shows that couples wait six years after they know they have a problem. In other words, gosh, that last year was not a good year. Hmm, turns out the year before wasn't good either. So six years we wait before we go and seek help. That means that right now there are six million people in the pipeline who are saying, my relationship isn't what it should be, but I'm not doing anything about it. So it's a very, it's very big deal. Like the big takeaway is don't wait. If you wait, by the time you get there, by the time you're at the end of that sliding board, you hate each other and you, it's impossible to help people who have decided they hate each other. Most definitely. And yeah. uh, it's, 
and that that hate and it goes back to really not so what do you what do you think it is i mean because I'm, I'm really trying to understand this because in life people change they also go through different problems and how to handle those problems and stay together is hard especially when things become so volatile and difficult and there's such hurt feelings it, people think oh it's simple just go to couples therapy you'll be fine and at, at times we figured out things so it's too late and a lot of times sometimes we get together with people that we really shouldn't have gotten together with that's another part of the process right well when i was 12 years old i watched my parents who had been, had a happy marriage up until that point have a fight over money credit card bills that both of them had We'd moved into a new house. They both racked up credit card bills on the nose to the other. But they had a fight where they went at each other and said and did things they regretted. And they made the biggest mistakes they could make with each other and destroyed their marriage because those behaviors infected. It was behaviors that they did. They unleashed that they had never done before. I was witness to the whole thing. Never saw them behave that way before. And then that became their habit of how they treated each other thereafter. So having an understanding of the behaviors that would be the biggest mistakes you could ever make with each other, and that's a report that I can pull for any couple, the biggest mistakes you could make with each other and how to avoid them. That's a very big deal because you know where you shouldn't go. You have the rules right in front of you, right from the start. And if you want three tips from me, it's behavior, behavior, behavior. <laughs> is what really is the cause of people falling apart and not knowing what the thou shalt nots are in your relationship. And when you talk to couples, what do you see when they get, you get them in therapy, the ways that you look at how things can be fixed or at least rep not repaired, but helped in certain ways. I mean, that's the, the biggest challenge is once you get there, the blame game starts and how do you, get that get them to be on the same page and compromise in some ways it's some difficult see neil i i am actually not a couples therapist i'm a i'm a marriage education um coach if you would but i use something called the berkman method berkman method is a personality assessment a motivational personality assessment it tells you why people do what they do and what happens when there be needs for behavior from each other what happens if it predicts what your worst behavior is going to look like when your needs are not met. So I use this assessment. It's what a marriage counselor, you'd have to sit on a couch and fight in front of a marriage counselor and hope they discern these things. But if you take the Berkman assessment, I can produce these reports. I've, Berkman is, uh, was created really for your personality at work. And I've translated Berkman into your personality in a love relationship. And once you take the assessment, I can tell you with stunning accuracy, the things you'll fight about, and it'll be the owner's manual to you and to your relationship and what you should do and what you should not do. Now, if you're able to navigate with the, the owner's manual, it's a lot easier to, to navigate a relationship when you have the owner's manual. Without it, it's all guesswork. And that's why couples get completely I've worked with couples for 10 years and when they come in, they're using the same words to mean opposite things. When they leave me, they're using, they have a shared language to understand exactly what they're saying and what they're meaning. The world is like 
um, it's like the Tower of Babel right now. Couples are very inarticulate about how they talk to each other, about what behaviors they need, lacking this. The Berkman method and the report to polls have stunning accuracy to describe what you need from each other in a relationship. So when you heard, you talked about 50% of the couples breaking up that you gave them that number. Do you feel that some of them should, or do you, do you think you can fix all of them, or it's not, that's not definitely the, the thought process? To stay together is an important well, I, thing. I don't really, it's, it's hard to get research details on that, but you know, if, if uh, let's just say that addiction will destroy a certain number of relationships, and there's people who are sociopathic or psychopathic um, who are, you know, just playing games. And you, you can peel off some of the outlying things. But when you get down to my the very first couple who ever came to me, they've been married 30 years, fighting 30 years. Husband was a marriage counselor. They'd been in marriage counseling 20 years, trying to figure out why were they were they kept having the same burn down the marriage kind of fight. And they came to me, they were actually given my services as a gift, came to me. And once I understood that, that they weren't just curiosity seekers, which was how they were, you know, handed off to me. And, I've, you know, there were a couple who were tense and uncomfortable with each other. I looked at their results and I said, there's a hidden thing right here. Um, it's around decision making. And for the wife, if the husband, if you talk over her or if you attempt to force your opinion on her she will turn from a very agreeable human being into an absolute tiger and at that point both of you will become extremely competitive and you'll have burned down the marriage fights but obviously you haven't been able to see this in 20 years of marriage counseling but your berkman assessment pinpoints this and i can almost guarantee you that if you stop doing that and here's what she needs instead of you talking over her, allow her to speak and just have a rational conversation. Never go to the point where you're attempting to force your leadership on her. And six months later, I got a phone call that said, you know what? This was like 20 years of marriage counseling in a box, except you showed us what the problem was and how not to do it because it's a sustainable solution. We haven't fought since. So. Wow. Yeah, behavior, behavior, behavior. If you're articulate about behavior, and we all judge each other all the time, Neil, about what, if you're treating me the wrong way, my need is instantly framing thoughts in my head like, who do you think you are? How could you possibly talk to me that way, right? What is that filter that's going on in your head that says, how dare you do that, right? Yeah. That's a, that's a, like, it's like programming that we have. That's the programming that Berkman articulates. All right, the Berkman assessment. So is that when you go when you go with you, that's what you give each one of the couples working with you, or is that what is that? Yeah, well, like and well, it's for the past ten years, I've been helping couples one at a time, and I thought this is, uh, it's you know, it's wonderful that I can help people, but my real my real mission is to help. There's a hundred million relationships in the U.S. Half of them are going to fail. I thought if I can produce these reports, the biggest mistakes you could make with each other, how to talk to each other, how to work with each other, um, what are your possible relationship disruptors and how do you avoid them? If I can produce these in an automated way, people come in, take the Berkman, get these reports from me overnight. And if you can read a, a repair manual about your dishwasher, 
uh, or your radio, right. you can you can read these reports and you could say, I see why we're fighting now. So that's really what I'm trying to do. It's not Chris Shaver. It's not me one on one, although I still do that. But I'm trying to help couples take the assessment, get these reports, zero in on the things that are honestly going to trip them up. I can't tell you whether you should marry or whether you should stay married. I can tell you why you're fighting. All right. So that's awesome. And that's, that's great information. Where can they go right now? Coupleswhisperer.com. Coupleswhisperer. I should have That was an easier name to say. Coupleswhisperer.com. And it's a tongue twister, but it's a worthwhile tongue twister. I appreciate you coming by. Yeah, Neil, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and, you know, when you talk about spring and preparation for spring, my guest today is going to prepare us for life in so many ways. So I'm excited to welcome her, Marianne Spencer. Marianne, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm great. Great. I'm in Southern California. It's beautiful here. Oh, yeah, you know, here in SoCal, it's worth it. In so many ways. So, Marianne, tell me a little bit about your background, then we'll get into our topic today. Sure. I have been a lifestyle writer, food editor for many, many years. Uh, I'm also a screenwriter, producer, and an author. Mm. And I do, I work, I have a local show that airs in Southern California, Simply Delicious Living, but people can watch it on their smart TVs on YouTube. And um, I love to talk about healthy eating and living and writing. And I incorporate that in my novels, my cookbooks, everything that I do. That's fantastic. And it's great that the, the media and the opportunities you have to have a show in Southern California and do that for sure. And so tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, that sh the show. So what types of what, if people tuned in, can they tune in other places or just in Southern California? You know, if they have YouTube, uh, it's my name, Marianne Radini Spencer, or Simply Delicious Living. I also have a website and blog, uh, and that's simplydeliciousliving.com. And it, and really what I love to do, and I've been doing this for a long time, uh, I started a fluke. Um, really, I was a news writer, producer for CNN, and oh. I started doing a lot of entertainment news, but because I was the only woman on staff at the time, they gave me all the cooking segments, which I love because I love, I grew up in a big Italian Irish family and we love cooking and entertaining. And so one thing led to another. I knew that someday I'd work on cookbooks and I just love creating recipes. So mm. it's something that just, I've always done. And then I started writing about it and producing shows about it. All right, so tell us for a topic today, five delicious things for spring. Let's go ahead. Absolutely. Well, I'm gonna say these are so simple, but sometimes we need a reminder. Eat right, eat well, eat clean. And mm. I say that because make sure you have a colorful plate, lots of fruits and vegetables on it. You also want meat, a little, you know, Mayo Clinic has the healthy plate, but I always say the more colorful your plate is, the healthier it is. People also really should be eating farm to table in season. And if you can shop at your local farmer's market, certified farmer's market, you can Google it. Uh, that's a great way to get to know how 
all the fruits and vegetables are grown and prepared, hopefully without pesticides. Um, and then you also wanna eat meatless meals once in a while. It's very healthy. It helps the environment and helps your health. It's been proven in studies to make you feel better. Uh, lean meats, fish, you know, you wanna do less sugar. When I cook, I love to use pureed fruits. Mm -hmm. And I know that may sound crazy, but I don't like refined sugar. And when you get used to eating less sugar, you don't crave it as much. And it's so much better for your health because sugar and salt is in everything. So if you can kind of watch what you're eating, it's gonna help your weight. It's gonna help you feel better, give you more energy. And I always say read labels because if you can't understand or read the ingredient that's on the label, you don't want to really eat it, would you? No, not at all. So, <laughs> and then I think it's very important to go meatless in certain ways. And I would have to, it have to taste like meat, but going meatless is important. That yes, it really is. It helps the environment. It also, it, it, um, it really helps your health and you can have a perfect protein when you combine like a bean and a rice. Um, and it, I have lots of fun recipes that I have meatless meals and you can add a piece of grilled fish or chicken to it if you have to have that. But, you know, I love to give people options. And, um, so I say eat well, that's number one. Um, next thing is move, walk, mm -hmm. ride a bike, go yeah. to the gym. Even if it's 20 minutes a day, yeah. you can do stuff at your desk. It makes you, you know, feel you so much better if you're working out. Great point. Gosh. It makes you, when you're eating right and you move, you're gonna feel like you have more energy because you do have more energy. More. And another part of that, number three is think positive. Um, express gratitude when you get up for the things that you have. Uh, try to surround yourself with like-minded people. Think happy thoughts. If you're finding yourself watching too much news and it's you've noticed that you're not feeling good, turn it off. It's okay, you know, get the headlines every once in a sure. while, but kind of listen to the music that you like, mm -hmm. talk to the people that make you feel good. And you just, when you're eating right and you're moving and you're thinking right, you're gonna be more conscious and mindful. And that brings me to the next thing is tuning into you. Yes. Focus on your life, what you want, you know, what you want to achieve. Uh, in your work, in your personal life. And, you know, I think when you're eating clean and moving and thinking positive, you can do that. You can be more yes. clear uh, about everything. And uh, things make sense. They make more sense because you're not Because you're really creating a plan. So is there anything else for the spring or is that all the areas? One thing. One more thing. Good relationships. Relationships and, are huge. And that's if you don't have a foster good relationships, then there's problems. Yeah. And in this day of technology, if you can't see someone, Zoom with them like we're doing, FaceTime. But when you're at a meal and out to dinner, turn off the technology because you want to make sure that you're connecting with the person and you're not, you know, just on your phone or just on your iPad. You want to look at that person in the eye and you want to hear what they're saying and read their body language so you can actually communicate and build a better bond. All right. Well, fantastic. Where can people um, learn more about you and stuff? Where can they go? You know, the best place they can go to MRS, 
rights like Marianne Redini Spencer, right? So MRS rights or simply Aloha Writer or simply deliciousliving.com. So I have a few ways to get to me. Um, and those are the best. <laughs> well, Marianne, it's great information. All these things, if you would practice these five things, you'd feel better about your life, you'd have more success in your life, and you would be happier. So great, great points for sure. Thank you. All right, you're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show, and my guest today, Fatima Bustas Choi, is going to, Dr. Fatima Bustas Choi is going to talk to us about a topic that's really interesting. Uh, her book, More Than Money, Five Paths to Abundance and Success for Inner-Centered Entrepreneurs. Thank you, Dr. Fatima, for coming by. How are you? Thank you, Neil. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on your show. All right, let's talk about this. Why, first of all, tell us your background, and then we'll talk about why you wrote the book. Okay. Um, well, my background is pretty, uh, I'd say, um, kind of the confluence of corporate life, community life, and then holistic wellness. Mm -hmm. And I feel uh, fortunate in being able to integrate all these aspects because at one point I was just so focused on making it work in the corporate world and uh, you know, climbing the corporate ladder of success, quote unquote, uh, chasing the American dream and uh, um, realizing that I, uh, I, was, I was losing my soul. You know, I really got so disconnected from my own purpose for, uh, for making this, this uh, journey into the corporate life. Why am I doing this in the first place? And so much of that, much of what's in the book is a lot of my own lived experiences in uh, making, making it, making it okay, you know, making it okay to be able to do well and be well at the same time. And uh, so I've had my uh, corporate experience. I was in the uh, financial services and aerospace industries for I'd say about 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I was a director with uh, Citibank California. That was my last corporate you know, post, so to speak. And then I opened my own consulting uh, work as a leadership development, organizational development consultant, as well as an executive coach. And then even with that, there was a time when I felt this isn't, this isn't all there is to life. There has to be something more. And so part of that was my own soul searching. And I was fortunate to have met three wonderful spiritual teachers. And then in 2003, a most powerful holistic practice um, called body and brain, integrating the mind, integrating the body, integrating energy. So it became kind of the centerpiece of my life. And I opened a holistic wellness center. And interesting enough, a lot of the people who came to the center were people like me, <laughs> you know, struggling with their corporate careers and as well as personal lives and, and uh, was able to help them regain their health, first of all, physical health, and then emotional health, 
mental health and spiritual health. And so much of all of this kind of amalgamation and accumulation, accumulation of all these experiences helped me to then put all of this in writing um, through the book. There's a little bit more to that, but I felt that- well, I love that you gave me a great summary. Uh, so why choose to help entrepreneurs for this book? Why entrepreneurs? That, yeah, that's a great question, Neil, because in the beginning, they were not in my consciousness, to be honest with you. Um, I was writing a book first, more like to the general public. And then as I interviewed people, I found out they were mostly, they were my clients, first of all. So they were CEOs, they were managing businesses, they were, they were just starting to open businesses. And I thought, whoa, these were the people that I kind of attracted to write about. And so I thought, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Then secondly, I feel my muse became my mom. My mother was my muse for writing because, and just as I dedicated the book to her, she is the first entrepreneur and my first teacher because at age 12, she already brought me to her store and I was her helper. And, uh, and then of course, you know, it's been a circuitous route before, coming to where I am today. And as a consultant, I am an entrepreneur in my own rights, you know? So uh, I felt given the interviewees that this is this book is for them. And then of course, Neil, as you know, with the pandemic, there has been a rise in entrepreneurs. People are now, have now been opening up their own businesses, leaving the corporate world and, creating their own niches, you know, of businesses. So I, I feel like it's timely in many ways. All right. So give us some tips for entrepreneurs right now to live uh, the right life. Give us some. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, if I can share what's at the heart of the book and, and that is first of all, and this leads also to your point of why entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs were constantly Oh, we're constantly working 24-7. And oftentimes, we, of course, want our businesses to succeed. But many times, uh, that is at the expense of our own personal lives. And so one of the things that I introduce uh, in the book is this idea that we do have an inner voice, an inner voice that knows more than we know, feels more than we feel, sees more than we see, and that we need to connect with that because we have been disconnected from it. And I'm asking entrepreneurs to connect with that inner voice for answers, for guidance to business questions, you know, as well as life questions. And then the second is the how part of that. How do you do that? So to your question, give us something for the entrepreneurs. Number one is to connect with your purpose. Why did you open the business to begin with? And we all have that, right? Like, why are you, you know, why do you have your show? Why, why? So it's the, the answering the why. Who am I? Why am I here? And then the second is, what is it that gives me passion, gives me joy? So the path of passion to fuel the dreams that you have. 
And then the third is that we all go through this, and that is pain. How do you slay the dragon and emerge whole? You know, so how do you go through pain? And entrepreneurs certainly have pain as a companion day in and day out. And so how do you go through pain? And as you go through pain, you will be able to um, connect with the promise to yourself and the possibilities of a better future for your business, for your family, for yourselves. And all of those five paths come together for the entrepreneur to then connect with that inner voice. So I recommend um, in the book to do some physical exercises because as entrepreneurs, we're constantly on the go and we forget ourselves. So physical exercises and the book has a ton of a ton of those. Well, after, after each chapter, I introduce physical exercises, emotional exercises. That's important and because an entrepreneur, and just to, start, to look at this, entrepreneur is a different person. They're different than other people. The, the, the way they are wired, the way they look at things, they have different things. And they can really, their health can go in problems. They could lose confidence in how they can grow that business. They give up after certain things happen instead of keep persevering and moving on and your book is to teach them you can do this and yes you have to be healthy you have to work out you have to eat right you have to um uh make be decisive in your decisions and you have to have positive attitude if you don't have any of those things forget about it that's correct you got it spot on it's exactly spot on. So Fatima, yeah. where can we go to purchase your book, Dr. Fatima? Where can we yes, go? of course. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Well, um, I have two things. It'll be up on Amazon. First of all, it'll be on Amazon.com. And that'll be happening in two weeks by May, May 21st. Okay. It'll be uploaded. Yeah, it's coming up. And then uh, my website is www.drdrfatima.com. Uh, lifecoach.com. All right. And so if you connect to my website and um, if you'd like a free downloadable uh, one of the paths, one of the five paths. So it's up to you. If you feel like, oh, I really want to connect with my purpose, you can download that and you'll have more insights and exercises to help you connect to who am I? Why am I here? All right, Dr. Fanminima, thanks for stopping by and appreciate coming on. Thank you, Neil. Great to meet you and all the best. All right. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And oh my, I'm wondering to you know this, our guest's stance in this, especially with his book. And you're talking, he's going to be talking about the news media, daily domination, Trump's. And then I'm excited to welcome to the show Hans Isaac Creek author of Trump's Daily Domination of the News Media. Hans, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me, Neil. It is uh, a great honor to be in your program. Uh, uh, well, uh, the, 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 the book is uh, called Trump's Daily Domination of the News Media. And I wrote it in uh, the end of the 2020. And it is published last year in October. Awesome. So tell us your background, Hans, and why you're in the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm for more than 50 years a journalist. And uh, I, I, I tell you, maybe it's interesting for your audience. 
I, um, I have two dreams when I was a young, young boy. The first dream was to become a radio journalist. Okay. And you know what it is, right? Yes. And the second, the second dream was to go to America when I was growing up. And uh, I succeed in both. I become a radio journalist and later on I became an, uh, a TV host. And uh, I work for the two largest broadcast companies in the Netherlands. And, um, and now and I'm in America. I came to America in 2008. That was my second dream. And uh, I got a green card in 2017. Okay. And, and uh, I just, uh, a week ago, I applied for American citizenship. Oh, congratulations. So yeah. About, yeah. About uh, two months, I've been officially an American. Awesome. So let's kind of uh, figure out specifically enough, why'd you write the book, Hans? Yes, I can tell you. Listen, in 2015, I saw that an, a guy named Donald J. Trump announced that he will become president of the United States. And I thought, who, who is that? And I saw it was an entertainer and um, a businessman. Right. And for me, for a journalist, I'm a political journalist, it was fascinating to see, hey, what is happening in America? And then I saw that he defeated 16 career politicians. Can you imagine? <laughs> 16 yeah. career politicians. And then he defeated Hillary Clinton and he became president. And for me, it was amazing to see and interesting to follow him as a political journalist. Exactly. And so what is your take? Do you kind of in your book kind of discuss specifically enough how he was able to rise to power based on his media ability to, to uh, I guess, work, use the media to his advantage? Yeah, listen, the, 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 the book uh, is about a, a few things. Um, I make an overview of um, the last 100 days of Trump's presidency. Uh, happened a lot, you know, the, the elections, uh, the Zeke from the, the capital. So I start on October 1, till January 22. And the reason that I, I, I wrote the book is that I saw as a journalist that in America, you know, you know the, the name, the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. And I, what I saw was they are busy to destroy Donald Trump and his family. From day one, he become president. And for me, it was as a journalist, you know, what is real and honest and fair journalist? And what I see in America, for me, it was shocking. Not fair journalism, you know? not fair journalism at all. No, and I spoke with a lot of colleagues from you. I have already 20 interviews now mm -hmm. for radio stations. And what I hear, the people are saying, journalism is dead in America. Are yes. you agree with that? Yes, it is, it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, 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 I show in my book uh, uh, 120 articles as a proof how the, the, the mainstream media is working. Right. No, no, and, then, yeah. mm -hmm. and, then, and then I wrote two chapters about fake news. What is fake news? Why they, they use it and how it works. And then an, another chapter is about framing. 
framing is an instrument using, especially by politics, they bring a conclusion, not news of real information. It is a wrong conclusion to give to the mainstream media to influence and manipulate the American people. And I talk with a lot of people here where I live in Florida, and I asked them about that. And they said, listen, do you know the difference between opinion and uh, news facts? Right. Because you see by CNN, MSNBC, and the, the other cable networks, there are people, host or anchor, how you call it, but are not real journalists. And they give their own opinion, and the people here in America thinks mostly that's the news, but it isn't. No, it it's isn't not. the news. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. So you wrote the book for what reason? What is your ultimate goal of why you wrote the book? Well, my approach uh, is to inform the, the American people to understand how the media, the mainstream media is working every single day here. And uh, do you think this sounds like uh, it might be interested to your uh, audience? Yeah, absolutely. It's always going to be interesting because I have conservative talk and different things. So the mainstream media really, uh, you know, is it doesn't tell the truth. And the whole time during Trump's presidency, they didn't, especially during the election in 2020. And they continue to try to destroy him because of the, the, the stance that the mainstream media does. They want just certain news. They're not looking at specifically facts. And that's what yes. you're teaching in your book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I ask some the people. Uh, do you know who who are the mainstream media? Do you know the mainstream media? Yeah, is? mainstream media is going to be NBC, ABC, uh, Fox, CNN, MSNBC. They're the mainstream media. Yeah, but who are the owners and who rules the media? The mainstream media. Big tech companies. No, 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 not not big. You know, it is. I tell you, it is Walt Disney, AT&T, mm -hmm. Comcast, Sony, um, uh, Fox News, right. uh, uh, Murdoch's, mm -hmm. and, and Viacom with CBS. That are the people who owns and rules the mainstream media. Got it. So ultimately, you want our, the, your, your readers to understand specifically enough what why why uh why the media is so fake in so many ways not covering the news what is your hope from that book that people start to rebel against that mainstream media and does not do not tune into them anymore yeah that's a very good question neil i appreciate it that you were asking me but the future is unsure in america about journalism it will be um, take a lot of time that um, um, the, the people, the, the, the real journalists, be aware how to work. And I'm a member of the um, uh, University, Columbia University of Journalism in New York, and I am a member of the International uh, Journalism Federation. And they have rules. There are rules how you must work as a journalist. And uh, listen, I can, uh, I have here, and I can send it to you, but okay. let me see, I have here, 
something I can show you. Uh, I'm not sure, but I can tell you. Wait a moment, please. Okay, sure. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Let me see. 